welcome to STEMiverse podcast episode 39. In this episode, Peter and Marcus talk with Rich Lehrer. Rich divides his time between being the innovation coordinator at Brookwood School in Manchester by the Sea, Massachusetts, and working with educators both in the US and internationally to bring authentic project-based learning experiences to their students. For the past five years, Rich has been breaking ground in the use of 3D printing to connect students to their communities and world through finding and solving real-world problems. Over the course of his career, Rich has been an educator in the Canadian public school system, in international schools in Venezuela and Brazil, and in the US independent school system. Throughout his 27 years in education, Rich has been committed to the search for what works in education. His quest is to use project-based learning in the development and implementation of meaningful, engaging and authentic student learning experiences for students. This is Demiverse Podcast Episode 39. Demiverse is a podcast produced by Tech Explorations. Our mission is to help educators become awesome at teaching STEM, be it at home or in the classroom. Whether you are a professional or casual teacher teaching in a classroom or a parent or caretaker teaching at home, this podcast brings you the knowledge and experiences of practitioners, academics, entrepreneurs and lifelong learners who are passionate about education and strive every day to help our children prepare for life in a world of radical change and why not abundance. This podcast is brought to you by Tech Explorations, a leading provider of educational resources for makers, STEM students and teachers. For a limited time only, go to texplore.com slash STEMiverse and receive Peter's latest ebook, Maker Education Revolution, a book about how making is changing the way that people learn and teach in the 21st century. Marcus, welcome. Great. It's nice and early here, uh, here in Sydney, Australia. It's uh, 8, 8 a.m. is right? No, it's only 7.51. We are making great <laughs> progress already. And we're actually starting a bit early today because we are talking to Rich Lehrer, who is in the eastern part of the U.S., right, Rich? You are That's in correct. Boston, I believe? So yeah. what time is it over there? So it is uh, just before 5 o'clock p.m. on hmm. Tuesday afternoon. Great. So actually, I like morning podcasts. My <laughs> mind is clear. I haven't had to deal with bits and pieces okay. happening during the day. So yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm not saying I'm going to do this again, but it depends when you've got special guests from the other side of the world. Special guests. Thank you very much. Well done, everyone. Yes. Awesome. Hey, Richard. So I uh, thank you for joining us. Oh, my really pleasure. appreciate taking the time. And uh, I'd like to start uh, asking you to take a few minutes to tell us about yourself, your your background. You can go as far back as you like, just to establish a bit of context about you, and then uh, we're going to get into the things that I know that you're really passionate about. Great, thanks, Peter. Uh, thanks, Marcus. It's great to be here with with you both. Yes, yeah, so I'm I'm currently uh, north of of Boston. I teach in a a small town called Manchester by the Sea. We're getting to be known internationally. There was a movie uh, made by the same name as our town, so. Um, and I'm about an hour north of, of Boston, as I, as I mentioned. So uh, I currently work at an independent school called Brookwood School. We're a pre-K to eighth grade school. 
Um, I've been here for, this is my 11th year. Prior to that, I, I taught overseas. So I taught in Brazil for five years and Venezuela for six years before that. Uh, I taught in the international school uh, system. Uh, both of those were American schools that I taught at. So I was 11 years in, in uh, South America. And then before that, I started my career teaching in the Canadian public system. So I'm Canadian by birth. Hmm. Uh, I currently have dual citizenship, Canadian uh, U.S. Uh, and I started my career as a, as a science teacher and did that for about 25 years uh, with a few other things thrown in there, the odd uh, French teaching, the odd bit of PE, the odd bit of service learning. But primarily my main uh, focus was, was science and, and math. And the last couple of years, uh, I've been branching off. I'm, I'm now out of the classroom as of two years ago. Uh, I had sort of the dream situation that a teacher runs into where um, some of the work that I was doing outside of my regular science teaching uh, assignment, uh, some of the work started to, to get some real traction and get noticed. And it seemed like people were interested in hearing more. So I, I resigned my, my position. And then uh, Brookwood School wooed me back with a, a halftime position. So my current current uh, job at Brookwood is, is innovation coordinator. So I do that mm-hmm. uh, 60% of the time. And then my the rest of my 40% of, of the time is just spent primarily consulting, uh, speaking, writing, presenting about some of the authentic design uh, work and project-based learning work that you were uh, referencing earlier, Peter. So that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of me in a nutshell there. <laughs> wow. So you've done a little, not a little, a lot of traveling, really. I was reading in your bio that you also spent time in Rwanda, and something really interesting came out of that. I've got a question about that later on. Yeah. So you've been to Rwanda, Brazil, Venezuela. Did all that experience uh, shape the, you know, what would later come to be known as uh, the authentic project-based learning and your philosophy in teaching and learning? Oh, well, first, maybe you can tell us what is authentic-based <laughs> Project. Yeah, a special question about that. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm ruining the flow already. <laughs> no, it's, like it's all right. Two minutes in. <laughs> we, got, we got so much to cover. I'm prepared to get at it uh, from any direction uh, that seems uh, to fit with you. So, yeah. So, so I just want to drill the intentions before we get to the actual outcome. Yeah. And, and in fact, you, you're right. My, my time overseas and particularly my time in Rwanda, which I can speak a little bit more specifically about if, you, if you'd like to know more about that. But those, those things both uh, laid the groundwork for my current work, but also there were some specific connections made through that work um, that really mm-hmm. contributed to uh, where I am right now, uh, seven years later. So, um, so definitely having a chance to, to do some teaching around the world, but also getting to learn from some incredible educators myself, that's that certainly has played a role in, in my current work. Yeah. Okay. To my question about what is... <laughs> just, just before that, um, I wonder, like, so when you are a teacher from the U.S. with that Canadian background going to a place like Brazil, for example, or Venezuela, I suppose you were appointed to those positions. And could you describe what it was like when you were there teaching kids at those schools? Yeah, that's a great question. So those were both um, American international schools. So uh, we taught an American curriculum to students from dozens and dozens of different nationalities. So in Venezuela, we would have probably about a quarter of our students were Venezuelan, and then the rest were from Latin America, Europe, uh, North America. Um, And so we... Uh, essentially, we're preparing students for uh, the IB course and AP, 
and really preparing those students for for an American college experience, even though many of them didn't go to uh, American colleges after that. So that was both the case in in Venezuela and Brazil. Just for people who who maybe don't know about the international teaching network, this is not a formal network. It's it's really a um, a group of uh, schools, hundreds of schools around the world that operate independently. And there are American international schools, British international schools, Canadian international schools, and and each has a bit of a different flavor and a, a bit of a different mission. But they're, they're loosely connected through that mission of trying to teach students of many different nationalities, some of whom are in the country for only a few months and some of whom are in the country for their entire life. So so really, really interesting for any uh, educators that are looking to, to spice up their their teaching practice a little bit. I, I uh, originally took a one-year leave of absence from my Canadian science teaching job. And after being in Venezuela for about three months, I wrote uh, my district superintendent and said, I don't think I'll be coming back. I think I found my calling. And uh, uh, a one-year uh, intended stint turned into 11. And then I, I met my uh, my wife, my she was not my wife then, but I, I met the woman that became my wife, and and she was from uh, the northeast of the U.S. And that's that's when she came back to do her doctorate. I came back with her, and that's that's what landed me here in the U.S. Uh, I came on an, an H-1B visa, uh, and then I got my green card, and that now I have my uh, citizenship, and I have we have two two kids who have uh, dual citizenship as well. So, right. So that's very interesting. So at that point, were you involved in? what we now call STEM education and project-based learning, or were those ideas still becoming um, or being formulated in your mind and your methods? Yeah, so I, when I look back on, so I'm in my, my 29th year at education, um, so I, I, have, I have an interesting multi-year perspective on, on teaching. Um, you know, I started teaching in very similar ways that I had been taught myself, not particularly relevant topics, um, not a lot of effort made to to make m- the learning meaningful to students. Hmm. You know, a lot of kind of canned science labs and and work math worksheets. And so really that idea of relevant, meaningful science work and even the idea of combining science and, and tech and engineering math, those those things were not really on my radar and and certainly were not being stressed when I was being trained as a teacher. However, when I when I look back, I realize um, one of the reasons I got into teaching and specifically into teaching STEM was because I felt that I had been shortchanged a little bit in my own education. Uh, apologies if there are any of my former teachers out there listening. Um, but I uh, <laughs> that's the same way. But I, you know, I felt that piece that was missing for me that you know making making the learning real and connecting it to real life things that i cared about that became something that i that i intended to do and i i strove to do that so in fact looking back now in my first even five or six years of teaching i I see um, elements of what we now call project-based learning just because that felt like the right thing to be doing with kids you know uh Mm -hmm. longer term projects in which uh students have a chance to own some of the the inquiry and the research, and then at the end of it, having some you know public product that they uh, apply their learning and and you know I see I, I see pieces of that and that I just continued to develop as I kind of moved through my own career to the point where all of a sudden I realized oh there's this movement out there called project based learning that is 100% in sync with what I think I would have liked as a student and what I see resonating with my own kids and and so now now we do that. I was reading one of the articles that you've got linked on your website, which we'll include in our show notes as well, that there was a student Gallup poll back in 2016 that found that 42% of students in grades 5 to 12 
aspire to create and emphasis in create something that makes a world a better place. So hence my end, I can see your optimism about the future. So can you tell us a little bit about that and what does that say about today's children, like the next generation growing up? And I think that can actually lead us finally to authentic project experiences. <laughs> you've, you've really effectively buried this lead. I, I love it. It's great. Um, yeah. I, uh, you know what, uh, Peter, I think you've absolutely hit it on the head there. Uh, I am on a daily basis absolutely blown away by what kids are capable of doing, what problems kids can solve. When I was younger, I used to see, see children uh, and students as just sort of lesser versions of adults and i absolutely no longer see that i have seen too many examples of kids you know create things and solve problems and throw themselves into making the world a better place that would just absolutely blow any adults uh, version of that away and so i my own thinking on just the role of young people in society has changed really dramatically even in the last five and, and ten years and and i gotta tell you that that is absolutely what gives me hope i see it in my own kids I see it in the students that I, I teach. I see it in the students of teachers that I train and work with. And yeah, as I said, all, all is not lost. Uh, there's an incredible generation just waiting to take the reins on this. And in fact, they're, they're not even waiting any longer. I don't know if if you followed this, the um, the reaction to the, the school shooting in, in Florida that just happened Absolutely, recently yeah. and, and the, the students' reaction to not just be passive bystanders, but actually take the reins on this thing and try to move, you know, legislation in a place where where public opinion couldn't do it. Uh, so there's there's something really powerful there, and in fact, I think that even that situation relates to some of the things that we'll mm-hmm. talk about about the empowerment of of kids. So uh, anxious to get into that topic. So would you say that student activism is a new thing, or is it something that's always been happening? Yeah, I th- I, I don't think so. I think I think what the new thing is 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 the power of the um, of the tech that the that kids have access to now. And, you know, a, a student with an effective piece of writing can, can reach a billion people, you know, and, and that that's something that when I started teaching, that was just absolutely not possible. And, and I've selected one form of tech, you know, uh, the internet and, and computers, but kids have access to the most incredibly sophisticated technology right now with, with the potential to make really effective end products and to broadcast them and share them with millions of people. And, and that's, that's a game changer as far as I'm concerned in education. All of a sudden you have mm-hmm. kids who can create on par with adults. And not only that, but they have fresh ideas and they have enthusiasm and they have the time to throw at it. And they also are, are naive enough to think that they can change the world, which I, I think actually many of them can. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And uh, I think finally that spirit and, and just absolute like fire in the belly that the kids have always had, all of a sudden now they, they have the reach and, and the ability to, to, to package that in, into like high quality, sophisticated products. And that's, you know, certainly that, that Florida story that I referenced, that's part of it. Um, the work that we've been doing with kids doing 3D printing and creating uh, original inventions and then being able to share that with millions of people, like it's happening across the board. And, and what I think is happening is, and, and we'll certainly get into this, but those sorts of tech pieces that allow kids to do those really sophisticated solutions to problems, then that's all of a sudden changing the way I think kids see themselves and how we see them. And all of a sudden we're seeing student empowerment that has nothing to do with technology, but they see the, the way being led by the students who have harnessed those, those pieces of tech. So 
Yeah, power to the children. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> I was looking at your, uh, I know that your email address. Uh, do you mind if we let it uh, give it out to people? Yeah, not at all. Because I think the name of your email address uh, is quite revealing about how you think about things. So your email address is creatingchangemakers at gmail.com. <laughs> yeah. So is that how you see yourself? You, you help, uh, you, you see children as change makers? Even Karen dialogues, many children don't have to wait for tomorrow to make their impact in the world. They're doing it right now. So are you a facilitator of that? Uh, you nailed it right there. Absolutely. Um, you know, when I used to teach science, I used to think that my job was to get as much content understanding into kids' heads as, as possible. And in fact, early in my career, that was the case. Uh, and then the internet came along and threatened to, to make me obsolete. Uh, and then what I realized was, you know, kids are going to be able to access information at the click. Well, not all kids, obviously, because not all kids have access to that uh, high quality text. Sure. But um, for, for a lot of kids on, on Earth, they can, there's no reason to memorize the periodic table right now because kids can, can click a button and hit, you know, 100,000 periodic tables at the click of a button and all of them more current than the one that's in the textbook to my right here. So, so all of a sudden I realized like my job, yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden I realized my job was not to do that content transfer was much, much more to, to help students understand what to do with that content. And, and that's been a long yeah. path to get to that point where all of a sudden viewing something like math and science and tech as tools to uh, make the world a better place to positively impact their own lives, their communities, their world. That's that's the true job, I think, of a STEM teacher. So, yeah, that's where I am with, with creating change makers. Awesome. So, I, I guess I have to ask the question. <laughs> do it, my person. Do it now. <laughs> what is an authentic project? <laughs> yeah, so... What's authentic um, design? I like the word design in that. <laughs> um, yeah, so so there are, uh, there's a, a number of different definitions for, for project-based learning out there. So, I, I consult for an organization called The Buck, Institute for Education, and if anything about what I'm saying resonates with anybody, um, you would likely want to check out bie.org. And the Buck Institute for Education has been promoting project-based learning for for about 25 years, um, and they're now we're now the certainly in the in the U.S. we're the premier organization for training teachers to do that. So we have a hundred uh, what are called national faculty members of of which I'm I'm one. And we all deliver workshops to teachers on, on how to do this. And essentially what it is, it's it's not a new way of teaching. It is really just a, a recognition of the things that excellent teachers have been doing in the past. Uh, it, it's an effort to make learning meaningful and relevant. Uh, students work over a long period of time. And at the bottom of everything, it is, it's a method to teach content skills, dispositions, learning, understanding. And so it's not a lot of times people... Um, mistake it for, oh, this is just sort of fun time, or this is, you know, give students kind of free time to really explore their passion. That That's not at least BIE's definition of, of project-based learning. It is truly a way to teach students rigorous content, understanding dispositions through uh, the context of, of projects. And really, if you think about it, that's really what what adults do. In fact, you're you're doing a project right now with this uh, webcast and all of the, uh, the all of the podcasts that you do. Lawyers and teachers and uh, filmmakers they they do projects. They're they're long term 
periods of study where they have to learn specific skills and content to be able to accomplish that. And what we're really trying to do is take that thing that actually happens in the world of work with adults and just do that with with students as well. So there's a couple of other hallmarks of project-based learning. Um, you know, usually at the end, there's a there's a final product uh, that students will then present to a, a public audience. The the inquiry is passed to students, so again, it's not just sort of dumping the content into the kid's head, but teaching them how to find good resources and sift through them to get the understanding themselves. So, um, happy to talk lots more about project based learning. The the authentic part of it is obviously that's that's my passion right there. Um, and so I use the word authentic to just. Uh, apply to anything that is connected to the real world, whether it's through the topics that students are studying or the tools they use or the way that they finally present their final project, authentic in that it would parallel the work that adults do, but it is a, a much more sort of novice version of of that. So and happy to go into more detail if, if you want me to clarify any of those points there. So. Yeah, definitely. So there's a distinction, I suppose, that you're making between normal, widely uh, accepted definition of project-based learning, which emphasizes obviously projects and learning through a project, leading a lead. There's a goal that you want to achieve, and typically it's a long-term project. It's not like right. a single, you know, classroom session project. And then you have the authentic project-based learning. In a nutshell, what's the main difference between these two? Yeah, great question. So. Um so really, in, in, and, and you may get a number of different definitions on how, depending on who you're speaking to, but for me, it has to do with, with the impact. And for me, an, uh, an authentic project-based learning would be one at, in the end where students have, have made a difference. And they've made a, a difference in a way that resembles the ways in which uh, accomplished adults and young people have been making a difference, oftentimes just on their own. But in this way, uh, we're actually using it as a chance to embed content with that. And, and I actually had this little epiphany actually only, only a few months ago, but I realized, you know, school, school has been pretty authentic for, for a number of years. It it hasn't always felt that way, but when I went to school, I, you know, I learned grammar and math skills and science, and those are very authentic skills, but the timeline on those, you know, I was learning them when I was 11 and the idea was, oh, maybe when I'm 30, I might have a job that will allow me to put these things into practice. And that's something that, that in the PBL world, we call just in case learning. You, you learn something just in case you might, you might need it. And what I realized, like authentic project-based learning, like shortens that timeline. And we're not going to wait 25 years to allow a student to put into practice the thing that they've learned. They're going to, they're going to do it right now. And if you can shorten that timeline down to a couple of months, you have some, some students who, could not only learn the the content and the skills, but then actually use them to affect positive change in their life or their school or their community or their world. And and then you've got that, that when that actually happens, that is an incredibly powerful um, situation. Maybe, do you mind if I share, this isn't one of my projects, but this is a project uh, that a teacher mm-hmm. that I was uh, working with, she was in my, one of my workshops. She had the, this idea for a, for a fractions project. And she wanted a, a project that would show kids not only like get them to learn fractions, not in that sort of just in case they'll need them, but but learn them just in time to do this project. And and so she taught her, her students how to how to. This is a sixth grade here that, that would be eleven year olds, and and um, she taught them fractions. And then with that knowledge, um, she had the the students make uh, jars of of cookie mix, and they were going to sell these 
and hopefully raise a little bit of money for a worthwhile charity. And they realized that one of their fellow students in their school was in need of uh, medical research. She was born with a genetic condition, and, and they had set up a cost of a, a million dollars for the initial tests for the for the research. So they thought, well, we can maybe you know sell these jars of, of cookie mix, put a QR code on the on the jar, and then anybody with a, a reader could see the math behind it and see what they were doing. and And they began by by selling about three thousand dollars worth of those. And they realized that all of a sudden they had just started something big. And so they made more and they sold more. And by the end of it, they had raised uh, about $50,000 towards the the health of or the research for one of their classmates. And that kicked off some really interesting interest in that project. So so a local news station got a hold of it. And then some professional football players heard about it and they, they tweeted it out. And at the end... Uh, that project raised over a million dollars uh, for the girl. It's it's uh, from Ipswich, Massachusetts. If anybody wants to to research and and just this this idea that these kids took this like thing that we all learn right how to do fractions, but they didn't learn how to do them. yeah they didn't do it in a way that they were being you know kind of lorded over by their teacher and forced to do it and just do worksheet after worksheet. They saw that the, it was this important tool that they needed to use to create these products that they were then going to use to help one of their classmates. And when we talk about shortening the timeline to make that a really authentic problem, like now those kids, whenever they think of fractions for the rest of their life, they're going to see it as this beautiful, I don't know, skill or tool that not only helped uh, one of their classmates, but, but really empowered them to be able to not only feel like they could make a difference, but actually really make a difference. So... Wow. Yeah. So that, that is definitely a very impactful outcome for a project, right? So the way that I, after your description, the way that I think about the differences between authentic project-based learning and just uh, vanilla <laughs> that project-based learning, is that both have got outcomes, yeah. right? Uh, the difference is that the project-based learning, the outcome is something like I'm going to build this robot and I'm going to learn X, Y, Z in the process where with authentic project-based learning is sort of the above plus. And I also helped a child uh, with a disability to get uh, uh, an artificial hand so that radically improves his life, That's right? exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Marcus, so to steal your vanilla word, <laughs> it's going to say detractors of PBL often say that it lacks the rigor of vanilla uh, teaching. Uh, yeah. How do you add rigor to PBL? Yeah, so that that that's the true, um, both the challenge, but also the the incredible reward of of doing this work. That oftentimes teachers are not put in the position of having to think of you know what are the real life applications of of these things that I'm teaching, and you know it, it is possible to try to fill a kid's head with a lot of things that just don't have meaning and don't have actual application. And so, what project based learning does is is puts the teacher in the position of asking the question like, when is somebody really going to use this? And can students do that in their in their you know their their youth or their school years? And that idea of adding rigor supposes that projects in themselves are not rigorous. And in fact, if you think the projects that just think of some of the projects that colleagues of yours might might do, whether it's starting a business or doing a presentation or preparing a, a legal case or designing a building or you know anything that adults do. They, they have to they learn rigorous content by doing that. And so if you can find projects for kids where the content that they're going to need to know is content that would be taught anyway, and that's the key thing here is that 
nothing about this model of project-based learning says that anybody has to do anything different aside from showing kids that there's an actual like application to the the material that they're learning. So, so I can give you a fairly um, straightforward. This is actually one of the first what we we call it PBL here. So that was one of the first. This is one of the first PBL projects that I did. So when I was first started teaching in my third year of teaching, uh, I was teaching on the west coast of Canada, and Fisheries Canada started a, a project called uh, Salmonids in the Classroom. And what it did was uh, Fisheries Canada would give you a cold water aquarium. And they would donate, uh, you know, probably 5,000 uh, fertilized salmon eggs. And then you would raise those in your school. And any of the fry that survived, you would then work with the hatchery to actually release those fry. And in addition to raising the eggs from eggs to fry to smolt and then releasing them, we also then taught students, you know, the life cycle of salmon, and we taught them about environmental factors that could affect river quality, and we talked to them about food webs and all of those things that, when I was taught them, I was taught read this chapter in a textbook, and then answer these worksheets about it, and maybe if you're lucky, you know, you could do a a presentation where you would read from an encyclopedia to your classmates, and and what this was, this was this is much different. Like it was the exact same content, but it was being learned in order to understand this thing that the students were going to do that would have impact on their their community their their environment and their community and that was really my first experience with mm-hmm. project based learning proper then and in fact that that wasn't really um we didn't call it project based learning at that time it just I just saw that and I thought oh my god that is something I want to be involved in like giving students who actually will become you know, fishermen and will become potential business owners and industrial employees around this area. Like I want them to have seen the life cycle of the salmon from egg to, to, you know, adult and what better way to do that than to have them raising that in their classroom and, and then releasing the fish when, when they were mature. So. Yeah. Nothing really beats reality when it comes to learning, right? Like a textbook is nice, especially it's got color pictures, but seeing the actual thing developing in front of your eyes. Is that the whole different thing? Yeah, and that that question, I, I don't, I didn't mean to. I hope I didn't come across as being, um, uh, you know, overly harsh on that question about about uh, rigor. That 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 is that's the number one question that we get uh, before we go into a, a district or a school, mm-hmm. and and really just to 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 let uh, educators and administrators know that project based learning is not new. It's just that there was just a small sliver of teachers mm-hmm. that were able to connect that rigorous content to actual school learning. Um, what we're trying to do is just broaden that base and, and have many, many more teachers be able to help students see the real-life applications of the content that they're learning. Mm. I think when uh, people talk about rigor in educational outcomes, they are really talking about tests and the ability to test students to make sure that they've achieved certain outcomes. Or meet the syllabus. Really. Oh, yeah, meeting the syllabus, so then you can test it. So do you think that testing and project-based learning, PBL, is compatible with each other? So, for example, if we have a school, let's say a hypothetical school where all learning happens in projects, and then time comes from for college or university where you have at least at this point in time, still mostly it's uh, an exam-based system to gain entry. Uh, Would those same students be able to deal with the exam system after having uh, exclusively PBL 
style of education? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, so there are, there are about five different uh, approaches that I could take to answer that. The first first one is that there uh, this could mm-hmm. this could be different around the world, but certainly here in the U.S. there's there's an increasing uh, recognition on the part of colleges that just to have students coming in with book learning is not serving them especially well in in colleges. So. So in mm-hmm. fact, um, one of the colleges that I that uh, was key to kind of the work that I got in right now is is MIT, so the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. So one of the top engineering colleges in the world, and I became connected to a, a part of their college called DLab. And if anybody out there um, wants to see what the the power of students to create authentic solutions is, please please Google uh, MIT DLab, and you're going to see it there. So. So when I found out that I was uh, going to Rwanda, so I so I went to Rwanda six years, seven almost seven years ago to study the role of STEM. Yep, that's right. So I was there to to look at the role of STEM and STEM education in helping Rwanda recover from the genocide. So I had a chance to visit a number of different schools and and see what was happening, uh, see how Rwanda was embracing STEM as a route to rebuild the country, and so. I, I was very superficially aware of of some of the things that MIT's DLab were doing, and so I contacted them. I just said, oh, "I'm looking for curriculum or examples of schools that, where students are doing very similar things to what your engineering students are doing, which is creating actual authentic solutions to problems that communities can can implement." And when I mentioned that to them, they said, "Well, we don't really have any schools that we're working with, but we've been very passionate about this, and we would love to work with you." And so. So what happened there was we then began to collaborate and create projects for middle school and high school students where they use STEM projects to create real solutions, but also then to connect with colleagues uh, and peers around the world. And that is project-based learning, you know, at its at its core. And many of many of the the top engineering universities from uh, here in the U.S. from MIT to Olin College to Purdue, they have project-based learning engineering courses. And and so certainly, you know, the the STEM colleges are are leading the way, but other colleges are seeing that as well. That that having students coming in, just being able to be good test writers and play the game of school, that is only getting them so far in terms of being able to to be successful in in kind of the new and in fact there's a real movement here in the US, uh, the college boards, that's just the way that high schools communicate, you know, students abilities and skills um there's a real movement here to to completely revamp that uh system it's it's called the uh mastery transcript consortium and it's a group of some of the top high schools in the u.s that are banding together to change the way that we inform colleges what kids can and can't do and so there's there's this multi-pronged almost revolution that's starting that project-based learning certainly has a uh, plays a role in and just um uh, the second thing I wanted to mention was that there there is a real place for traditional learning within project based learning. There's there's a place for direct instruction in a project based learning project. It's just that shouldn't be the only thing that happens. You know? So there's and there's about three or four other answers to that question that I would love to to share as well. An- another show, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to need another hour for that. I'm just thinking that. Uh, like for for me, testing is because personally I had so much problems uh, with standardized tests, exams, and all that. It's so last century, maybe maybe century before last actually. And um, I think the recipe needs to change, as you said. It's not that we don't want to do any tests of any kind at all. It's just that the mix has to change of how we assess student capability, and then we use 
those tools in order to assist students to you know plug in any knowledge gaps for example especially if we are teaching with a uh, uh, goal to uh, to mastery mm-hmm. not just uh, superficial learning good enough for a test which is the goal in many circumstances as well in schools right yeah we often think for the test we often think about it as just for schools but i was thinking about my university and my time at university yes. <laughs> when i was doing engineering it was always test 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 right. test test oh, test my life has been uh, one test after the but, other but uh, postgraduate was all pbl right i love postgraduate so, <laughs> it was like Actually, we should do everything like this. You know, that's why yeah. I think we should want to do all these postgraduate degrees. Yeah. Because I love this so much. Yeah, it was fun <laughs> actually building stuff. Yeah, and, and actually, maybe I can give you an example. So, um, you know, sometimes all that is needed is a bit of an adventurous teacher or, or a teacher that is not risk-adverse to sort of lead a, lead a school in that direction. So I think one of the, one of the projects that I have been deeply involved in it for the last four or five years is, has been the, the 3D printed prosthetic work that we've been doing. When I first proposed that to my to my administrator, so uh, so the school that I teach at, Brookwood, an amazing school, but we also are tasked with preparing our students for a very rigorous high school experience. And when I proposed to my my administrator that I wanted to, to I, I had come across this video where these um, two designers had created uh, the first 3D printable prosthetic uh, sort of a do-it-yourself prosthetic, and when I saw that that YouTube video, I got very excited because my my son was born with a condition called symbrachydactyly, where the fingers didn't grow on his his right hand properly. And when I saw that idea, that oh, there might be a way not only for me to build a prosthetic, but maybe I could get a group of students to do this. When I proposed that to my um, administrator, it was full-on breaks. It was like, oh, that sounds a little bit uh, risky, and you know, we would be worried about you know, the health of your son, and we'd be worried about the disappointment if it doesn't work out. And, uh, <laughs> what do they think you're doing? Yeah, and, and, so, and so I said, well, okay, that sounds great. We, we won't pursue it. And sort of a little bit um, <laughs> kind of behind the scenes and things like that, I created a 3D printing club, even though we didn't have a 3D printer. And, and I just used that as, as the, uh, the moniker. Uh, and then we went ahead and we, we, we took six months and we built uh, Max of Functional Prosthetic. And it's like skunk works, right? Yeah. yeah. That's right. But could, before we go too far down this route, could you please tell us how you created a 3D printing club without a 3D print, <laughs> printer? You think there's a lot of schools out there that don't have the resources to buy a 3D printer. And then without your administrator really being in the loop. Yeah. Yes. So what we did, um, so I found 12 students um, who would be part of my nefarious campaign and, and um from the start, it was it was clear to them that we were going to be trying to build this prosthetic, and and there were three things that were needed. Um, we needed some thermoplastic uh, sort of splinting material. We needed metal hardware, and then we needed three D printed customized pieces. So we just, uh, you know, I worked with them. I wasn't really their teacher. I was just one of the group members, and we split into three groups. Uh, one group to find the metal hardware, one group to find somebody who could get us some thermoplastic, and one group to track down somebody who had a 3D printer. When I first did this project, I actually thought 3D printers were subtractive and that they actually carved away. And I remember that when I actually went to uh, a school that was about uh, an hour down the road from us that I just bought a, a brand new MakerBot. And when I saw that it was actually additive, I remember being like, oh my God, I didn't even know you know, that this is, didn't have any concept of how it works. So so we used uh, that school. It was a high school, even though we were a, an eighth grade club. We we paired up with them because they were interested in having a, an authentic use for their three D printer. So they they created the pieces for us, and and we 
built the prosthetic using the pieces that they had created and the pieces that our maintenance department, the metal hardware they had found. And then uh, Boston Children's Hospital made a, a donation of some of the plastic. So we had the materials and the kids asked if they could come in for a couple of weekends and, and work on this thing. And then we finally had um, the functional thing and we brought Max in. And, and I got to tell you, when when I put that thing on his hand and he used it to pick up uh, these blocks with his right hand, that, that was that was a I say that that's the ten seconds that changed my life right there because all of a sudden these yeah. these ideas that I had that kids could make a difference and this new generation of technology that was allowing kids to 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 create these hyper hyper effective solutions all of a sudden there it was like impacting my son and my life directly and we happened to to catch a little video of the first time that he started to pick up some blocks with that and and that's been the the mm. kind of little calling card that we've used um, and that and that. That, that single project has now led to, uh, I've got about 20 different authentic design strands on the go that, that I trace right back to that original uh, project that we did. So. Yeah, uh, I saw the video. Uh, oh, cool. We are going to link it to our show notes as well. And you can see how Max is trying out his new hand for the first time with uh, trying to pick up a, a yellow object. I think so. it looks like a, a rectangular yeah. block. And uh, how happy he is when he finally makes it and he can mm-hmm. pick up that object through his index and uh, thumb and picks it up. Are there any electronics within the, the prosthetic? No. So these are all mechanical prosthetics. Um, they have uh, elastic bungees that keep the hand open and splayed. And then there are cords that are tied to the bottoms of the tips of the finger and they're anchored at the back. So when he bends his wrist down, it effectively pulls the, the tips of the fingers in towards the palm and, and so he can open and close the device uh, by uh, bending his wrists. So, so not, not electronic. So it's totally customized for what Max can do, the, the parts of his hand that he can control in order to control the prosthetic hand. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, we've even moved away um, from those kind of five-fingered hands. And after a couple of years of, of building those hands, and uh, this this is the work of an incredible organization called Enable. So they're, they're leading the charge on uh, the global charge on 3D printable prosthetics. Um, you should check them out. It's e Enable. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've actually we've realized that Max, those five-fingered hands, they're great from a social-emotional point of view. And when he comes into his school, instead of being, you know, the, the little boy with kind of a crazy hand, he wears this like bright green, yeah. uh, incredible Hulk prosthetic. And, you know, 30 kids will flock to him and they want to see what it is. And it just gives him a tool to kind of uh, message for, for his classmates who he is. But what we're really realizing that what he needs is he needs like uh, a hyper customized device that is purely just based on functionality. So in fact, we've moved away from those articulated fingers and mechanical. And what we're doing now is we're just taking scans of Max's hand and importing them into Tinkercad, which is a really simple design program. And then we actually are mm-hmm. making these devices that are perfectly customized to his hand because it's his his actual uh, a 3D scan of his hand that creates the negative space that it goes into. And, and then we pass the designing of the the sort of business end of the uh, prosthetic to the students. So they would look at their physical education program and what sorts of, you know, sticks or PE tools would Max not be able to use. And then they can create a piece that slides into the device or they go into the music department and they take a look like what sorts of bows or mallets or drumsticks could he not hold with his hand. And then they design the piece 
that then slides into the customized device that we have. So we're we're now just all about like wow. customization works perfectly for him, not a universal solution, but why not have every kid who has what's called an upper limb difference? Why not every every kid should have a scan of their hand that they could then use to work with engineering students or just like regular kids like the ones I work with and create devices yeah. uh, you know through the community like that. So. That's so that's has, uh, totally impactful. Has Autodesk reached out to you? Surely they've got to love this. Yeah, they do. Yeah, so I, I do um, a fair amount of work with with Tinkercad now. Um, so there are, and in fact, it's kind of crazy. Like the prosthetic work has become kind of now my the the side work. Uh, really, the, the majority of of work that now consumes uh, my time. So after we built those prosthetics, and I. I, I thought, oh yeah, what we need are these like engineered pieces that go on the hand. Then all of a sudden I realized, oh, every one of our students should have that ability to be able to find something in their community where a 3D design, a 3D printed solution could be needed. So we created this thing called the problem bank. Um, so I had this idea in a shower uh, one day that just like, oh, we could, we could like <laughs> solicit problems from our community and they could send them in and we could post them on a website. And then any student in our community could see the problems posted there in a class or in a study hall or in an after-school class or on their own at home, which actually has turned out to be the majority of times that kids work on these projects is just on their own. So what we did then did is we just had this repository of problems. We routinely kind of do calls for problems from our school community, and we post them on this website, and then students just design the solutions, and we keep it in-house so that the students can actually see their designs being uh, implemented and get a chance to go through that iterative process. And so that um, that caught Autodesk's eye. Uh, so I shared that with Tinkercad and they got really excited. And, and then we actually took that same idea. Um, we had been doing that work in-house in our school community and we realized, oh, there might be other community groups where our kids could be designing those solutions to real authentic problems. Um, so we connected with a, a seniors housing organization on the North Shore called Harbor Light Community Partners. Uh, so we now are in the third year of these uh, middle school senior design collaboratives where our kids go and they they develop relationships with the seniors. And then after several meetings, they turn the conversation towards, well, what sorts of, um, here's what 3D printing is, what sorts of problems might you have seen in your life or the lives of uh, the other people who live in this residence or just seniors in general. And then our students work with mm-hmm. seniors to uh, begin prototyping solutions. They use Play-Doh and cardboard, and then our kids teach the seniors Tinkercad, and then they co-design them, and then and then our students do sort of the final piece where they mm. they create versions of the devices, and then they refine them, and and then finally share them with the seniors. and And those things, uh, certainly the prosthetics that that caught uh, Autodesk's eye, but the problem bank and now the senior problem design collaborative work that that also. Uh, so I just did a. I just did a, a big webinar for for Tinkercad just on this idea of using 3D printing as a, a route towards getting kids uh, involved in community. Uh, I, I hesitate sometimes to use the word service just because that idea of service has it feels like a loaded term. It's it's much more collaborative, you know, having kids work with people in their communities to find problems and ideate solutions, and then actually create the solutions. So, so there's no age limit to project-based learning. Yeah. You're seniors. I collaborate with uh, much, much younger project members to create solutions for senior problems. Yeah. 
And uh, I'm looking at the website where you list a lot of those problems. Uh, it's designproblembank.weebly.com. Just want to read out one problem so that our listeners uh, get an instant idea of what these problems look like. And so here's one. Hi, we are looking for PVC joiners to allow us to have our kindergarten students create structures out of PVC. Could you design some of those for us? Thanks, Mr. P. So a problem like that will arrive to the website. Somebody will post it there. And what happens? What's the next step? Yeah, that's actually a really, it's very interesting that you chose that one because that project itself created a, a, a whole kind of new suite of approaches to, to the work that we're doing. So before that project was, was, that problem was posted, essentially a student would take on the project they would do some initial prototypes. They would actually walk down the hall to the teacher. They would share the prototypes, get some feedback, go back. Um, we would do what we call a digital prototype, where they would just do a, a, a Tinkercad mock-up of it, share the screenshot of that with them, get some feedback on that. We created a, a, an approach that we call the design slice, where rather than having students take 12 hours to print off something that likely is not going to fit. We get them to just think, what is the absolute lowest profile that you could create? You know, rather than printing that 15 centimeter block off, why not just print a one millimeter profile of it and then use that to check to see if it, it works mm. once they've gone through and that, that way that's a, that's a 10 minute print. So they can go through like four or five of those to refine the, the specs of it. And once they've done that, then they'll extrude it up and they'll, they'll create the whole thing and share it and continue to get feedback before that project. We had students going from problem idea, first solution, iterations, final solutions. They were going start to finish in that process. And what we realized when that, when that project was posted, we realized, ah, there, this does not have to be something where kids are going from the problem all the way to the final solution themselves. And so what we did was we created a, a team between uh, kindergarten students who are going to be the final users of it, fifth grade students, those are 10-year-olds, and, um, and, and myself and another teacher who had some design skills. So what we realized is, oh, the fifth graders that we were going to do that project with, so we did it as part of their science class. They didn't have the Tinkercad skills to be able to create this, the, the actual joiner themselves. And in fact, the ones that we tried just snapped uh, every time we tried to use them. But what we realized was we could use something different. We could use wooden dowels that are much lighter. And so we had the fifth graders prototype them in Play-Doh, determine which angles were needed, you know, how many different pieces had to come together at a corner. And then they designed a very basic version of it. And then the other teacher and myself, we used sort of a dovetail sliding system that we had uh, developed for another project. And we just grafted the piece that they had created, the, the, the cylindrical cup that would go over the dowel. We created it to the actual sliding component using their mm -hmm. Play-Doh designs to show us how it's supposed to go together. And all of a sudden, we had this real another one of those epiphanies where, you know, those kindergarten students were playing a really important role in this. They were both the source of the problem. They were the testers. They were the ones who were going to give the feedback on what was breaking and what was not breaking. But we also realized for those fifth graders to have this really authentic design problem-solving solution, if we were going to try to have them go start to finish, it would it would be a failure. But having them develop, you know, different aspects of the final solution where they actually had a part to play and really important part to play in the thing that finally worked, they had as real an experience with solving problems as a student who would have gone from start to finish. So, so you developed over time, you developed and uh, improved the method of solving those yeah. problems. 
Yeah. And uh, so when you started this initiative and you started accepting, I suppose, uh, if that's the right word, problems from the community, you started with a way of doing it where it was more monolithic in a way. Now you've got a lot more iteration. You take a, a lot more, uh, you know, you, you, your context is wider so that you can use alternative materials, see what works, what doesn't work, involve more people yeah. during the process. Sounds like a rapid development and iterative process. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. We realize because we're a, we're a pre-kindergarten to eighth grade school, if we were just if our model was going to be problem to final professional solution at the end, we were only going to be able to involve a, a handful of students in that, and and we were doing that work. We we had our mm. our whole sixth grade doing that that seniors design project. So we had, you know, that's fifty students doing it. But what we realized is if we were going to involve our younger students, we needed to have them involved at very strategic points in that design process where they could not just you know sort of a. Yeah. Um, perfunctory role, but an actual like really important integral role. And then those kids, because they're involved in that and they see the the full scope, then when they age and they become older, they're already fully aware of that full design process and they know the roles that they played in the past. We're we're clearly looking for them to be able to do that start to finish uh, as well. So yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Thanks. Um, just be mindful of the time. We just hit the one hour mark. And I'm just getting started. Um, uh, <laughs> Uh, no, it's just time is flying. Uh, but we still have a couple of good ones here. Like uh, I was looking at some of the articles that you've written, you've got linked on your website, and one of them is titled Sowing the Seeds of Empathy with Technology. And uh, I don't remember seeing this combination of words before together, like empathy and technology. Uh, could you take a few minutes to tell us about what what you mean really by that, how technology and empathy actually work together? Yeah, so this is the really interesting um, part of the work that, that we've really been bashing away at for a few years. So, you know, we, we usually think of technology as this very kind of antiseptic, very unemotional approach to solving a problem. And in fact, what we're finding is the complete opposite because these new generations of technology, and I, I, I'm really speaking primarily about 3D printing here, but we could be talking about, you know, coding, we could be talking about gamification, we could be talking about creating apps, we could be talking about creating solutions with Arduinos. Uh, Marcus, that's where maybe we can we can have this conversation uh, after the podcast is over. But um, <laughs> for example, with 3D printing, for a student to be able to create a solution that works, they have to understand the not only the problem itself, but they have to understand the, the poster of the problem, the, the person that created the problem. And when all of a sudden I had students creating devices for my son, Max, even though my school administrators were concerned that I was just going to turn him loose to a bunch of eighth graders. And I was very careful and I, I wanted to make sure that, you know, his uh, physical health and emotional health were, were, were the, the prime concerns there. And so when we started that, it became really important for me to introduce my son to this group of eighth grade students and to spend time with him and to see him as a person and to provide them with opportunities to ask him questions about what he liked to do and what were his limitations and what sorts of things could he use that they might be able to, to design. And all of a sudden, I realized like in order for them to create a, a device or a product that is, that's going to work, they need to understand him really well and they need to be able to put themselves in his mm -hmm. shoes. And, and that work continues today when, when those students are looking for athletic equipment or a, a prosthetic piece of athletic equipment or a, a prosthetic piece of musical equipment, 
we always encourage them to have a conversation with Max, to put themselves in his shoes, to think of the school from his perspective. And that idea of pushing middle school students to think of their community through somebody else's eyes, that's powerful work right there. We, we do the same thing with the seniors as well. Right. You know, if, if our students are going to design a 3D printed assistive device for a senior, we're going to demand that they spend a good couple of months creating a relationship both so that they can understand not only the problem, but also the person who posts the problem, but so that they also have a relationship built where when they need feedback, when they're almost there, the prototype is done and they've tried a few iterations and now comes the tough work where a 80-year-old senior has to tell a 14-year-old boy that what he has created isn't quite good enough yet. You need to have a strong relationship there for that to work. And so we spend a lot of time... Yeah developing friendship and relationships between the kids and the seniors so that the kids can view the solutions through the eyes of the senior, but also so they can then leverage that wisdom and experience to help them make their, you know, not just a sort of a, an almost working solution. We're looking for, you know, professional grade solutions. And so they need that, that feedback. So, yeah. um, and in fact, I, th- th- this is one piece where I really feel like we've just scratched the surfaces. Um, I think all of these, new generations of technology where kids can create these high, high professional solutions. Like they all require kids to think hard about who they're designing with and for. So I think, I think, I think we we found a new way to teach empathy here. So So you want to have an authentic relationship between the designer and the final user of, especially of a prosthetic because it's a very private object, isn't it? So you really need to have an authentic relation yeah. between the two. Well, empathy. Empathy is yeah. the big one. Yeah. yeah, one of the things yeah. I learned from, from D-Lab, even though that was seven years ago, like it still daily informs my work, is it is really easy for somebody to design a solution for somebody who, uh, a problem that somebody has on, on the opposite side of the world. That's because you don't necessarily have to see the daily use of it, putting it into use. Oh, it worked okay, but then it broke. Or it worked okay, but then it started to chafe my wrist. So... One thing that D-Lab does is, is they, their basic motto has nothing to do with just delivering the solution. Their motto all has to do with implementation over long periods of time. And the field of, of international aid is, is littered with, with people who, who their hearts were in the right place and they had a great idea and an implementation, uh, yeah. a solution was implemented and nobody stuck around for a couple of years to see if it mm. worked. Um, one of the first projects that I did with D-Lab was uh, we did this efficient cook stove, biomass cook stove project where we had kids in Rwanda, Uganda, Brazil, and United States all building these efficient cook stoves to, to try to improve um, the efficiency to use less fuel. And uh, I learned through that that most stove projects uh, a year after impl- the actual real stove projects that people are using to cook their meals, uh, those projects are often you know, they're completely abandoned after a year just because one must understand the culture and the type of cooking and gender issues around roles in the house. Like there's so many factors that can lead to the success or failure of a stove project. And unless you're there for the long haul, and unless you've taken a lot of time to, to try to figure out the people with whom and for whom you're designing, um, it's going to be a failure. So, mm-hmm. so it goes far beyond the engineering aspect then. There's, there's a lot of uh, you know, interpersonal skills that are involved, this social engineering, if that yeah. word is correct. But it just it's not just engineering. And, well, it's uh, design. Yeah. 
which design, yeah, yeah, which design is so it's an art. It's so quite extent. Design is not art. <laughs> You're talking <laughs> to the guy who's <laughs> masters of design science. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's quite interesting to hear all these yeah. words that you traditionally uh, associate with UX, user experience, yeah. and design, and actually seeing them being so applied in, in your, the classroom. In your training as a design uh, uh, did you touch onto those? I'm not saying you personally, but did your curriculum include those interpersonal skills with the end users, spending time with them over long periods of time? Well, I, uh, I was I'm interviewing inside, yeah, yeah. I was in a, <laughs> uh, inside the University of Sydney. They had the KCDC, which is like the key center for learning design and cognition. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of thought being put into how other people ah, perceive yeah. and uh, think about the world and how they interact with the world of like literally cognition. Mm. So uh, yes, to answer your question. Thank you. So there you go, Rich. So uh, it seems like you wrote, uh, you reached these conclusions and this process uh, that uh, seems to be like a a formal thing of training for designers these days. I, I certainly didn't mean to um, send the message that, that we had figured this out independent of, of it. There, there were some amazing organizations. Um, if anybody knows uh, Stanford D School, um, they just do incredible work in, in just the, the field of human-centered design. And mm-hmm. um, they have a, a great interviewing for empathy uh, protocol that they, that they encourage their, their makers to use and their designers to use. And IDO is another great uh, organization. They're, they're a company, but they, they do a lot yeah. of now education mm. pieces and they that human-centered design is, is right at the, the center of what they do so yeah just try to take work that they do and you know i think the thing is a lot of times educators would do this as sort of third parties to it i think that the key that for me was bringing my son into it and that was certainly a game changer just in the way that i viewed my own mm. uh you know relationship with my students and relationship with with my practice and all of a sudden that idea that i'd probably been aware of in in theory or in the abstract when it was my own son, he was three years old when we built that first prosthetic, like to really have to think, yeah, not only from my own point of view, but also for, from the point of view of my kids, I wanted to make sure that they were understanding him well before we went ahead and launched into this. Which is quite amazing because uh, yeah. I was just thinking uh, people looking at this probably think it's, you know, a STEM sciencey technology kind of thing, but this is, these are key skills that are used yeah. you know, in business as well. So Great. Good business. Yeah, great. Yeah. If you think about like the, uh, not hacking news, what is it? Y Combinator. They have mm-hmm. whole lectures mm-hmm. on how to, uh, you know, how to do human centered design yeah. around products. So yeah. It's uh, very much a business skill as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Great podcast to listen to. Yeah. Rich, we should move into rapid fire questions. Yeah. Sorry, we're running out of time. Because there's a couple of. Uh, really quick things that we want to get out of you that I think are very valuable for our listeners. For example, Marcus. Oh, so who has been the most influential in shaping the way that you teach? Yeah. Um, Dead or alive, could be fictional or a real person. Yeah, so I would, I would, uh, my first thought would be to, to sort of talk about some of the teachers that I had when I was a kid, certainly like mm. excellent teachers as well as just abysmal teachers who, who helped me see that there was uh, untapped potential for education to to empower kids. So those those teachers will re- remain uh, nameless at the moment. But I would have to say, uh, so Amy Smith is the woman. Uh, she created D Lab. When I reached out to her and with that email about 
saying that I was going to Rwanda and, oh, it would be interesting to hear what's up there. Oh, MIT. Yeah, yeah, when the next day when I got an email back from her and her team, you know, just a eighth grade science teacher and she was wanting to meet with me to talk through this idea like that, that changed my life right there. And um, and Amy and her team at um, D-Lab have been huge supporters of my work and have just been really like not only uh, helping with making connections and but also, you know, making suggestions and also allowing me to kind of refine some of the approaches that I do. So, so I would, I'd put her top. Uh, and if anybody out there is interested in this, this work, check her out. She has an amazing story as well. And just, just a, a real thought leader in that field. So. Well, we are going to provide a link to Amy Smith and the D-Lab at MIT in the show mm-hmm. notes. So just go there and you'll be able to just click on it. Now I know that you, work with a lot of technology, especially there's Tinkercad. Are there any other applications that could be, say, design applications, could be applications that you use to work with the students and monitor projects and document projects that you would recommend other teachers to look at? Yeah, so I'm really thoroughly immersed in Tinkercad and, and Fusion 360. Those are the two design tools that we use with our kids. And I would not, you know, I'm, I'm actually a biologist by training. I would not consider myself to be, a, you know, a real technophile, somebody who, you know, I, I don't code. I, I studied some coding when I was a, a kid and so, but have not used it uh, since I graduated from university mm-hmm. all those decades ago. And so right now I'm involved, that, that problem bank idea that I shared with mm-hmm. you, the Ultimaker, uh, that's the 3D printer company, asked if I would consider uh, putting together a um, a global problem bank idea where we have a number of different schools do that. They create a, a problem bank and then they they we connect our students through the problems that they're solving and use that as a vehicle for the kids to get some social understanding. There, we're, we're just we're like one month into that. That's been a, yeah. an exciting um, thing, and we try to get our kids to connect through um, very very simple tech platforms. So emailing, just Weebly websites, Weebly. Uh, Google Docs. Hmm. Yeah, uh, that's just a simple uh, website creation tool. tool. And just what what I've realized, you know, in fact, um, when I used to do these global collaborations, we used to do a lot of Skyping. And what we found was just the gains, there was diminishing returns. You know, the Skyping with kids around the world is just the potential for those calls to drop. And kids tend to be not as quite as resilient as we are in terms Mm -hmm. of like disappointment when that happens. And so, so we try to stay away from, from really high tech video conferences. And we, we just, Uh we try to use uh, as much as possible, just error free collaboration tools. And, and really in terms of my tech, you know, there's a couple of other things. There's, there's a really cool app out there called clone. That's Q L O N E. They're a company that has, created an app that allows a, an iPad to be used as a 3D scanner. Oh. And that's been really exciting just to, because uh, scan, scanners up to this point have not been either very effective or very cheap. And this is really the first time that we've seen some high quality scans coming from a really cheap app that allows us to to scan. I also use a, another app with, with really young kids called Morphe. Uh, Morphe is a 3D design app that's just come on the scene in the last year or so. Some of the geometric designing with it is tough for young kids to do, but they have this really cool feature where you can draw with your finger on the iPad screen and then turns it into a SVG and then you can extrude that and create a 3D print. And that's kind of cool when all of a sudden you have like a first grader that can actually write with their finger or or create a prototype with their finger. And then, uh, you know, that whole thing of having somebody else then do the actual designing. Um, Oh, right. 
Yeah, so those are my main. Yeah, awesome. Right Thank you. That's great. When you look yeah. those up, uh, advice. Would you have any advice that you give educators who are just starting out? Yeah. Uh, I've asked this question oh before. You know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You when you're yes. when you're uh, when your administrator says, "Oh, that sounds really risky," and I don't know if we really <laughs> should go in that, um, take that with a grain of salt. Now, I'm not saying like that. You know, every beginning teacher should just launch forward with every wacky, crazy <laughs> idea that comes in their head, but. You know, if you have an idea that feels right to you, and I don't know, I always use the test of what would I have thought when I was a kid? Like, how how would this have resonated with me? And I don't know. I, I just thought, like, if I was a kid and my teacher had said to me, like, oh, my son could use a prosthetic, would you help me? You know, not I have it all uh, figured out and I want you to build a version of it. It's like if my teacher had come to me and said, like, I really want to try to solve this problem and I need you to help me do it, like, that would have absolutely you know, just floated my boat, as we say here yeah, in the United States. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, you know, and, and and just to sort of put things through through that filter, like what would you have wanted when you were a kid? And, you know, and, and I, certainly I, I was being a little facetious there, not, you know, administrators do great work. and But you have to sometimes, you, th- this work always doesn't fit into that nice toddy box of, you yeah. know, uh, 8.30 to 4 o'clock in the afternoon and broken up into different disciplines. And, you know, sometimes you're going to have to do things that are a little bit, you know, like that thing of when the kids asked if they could come in on the weekends to build this thing. Like, all of a sudden I'm just, oh my God, like I'm, I'm now coming in on Saturdays with my kids. Uh, but imagine that, you know, you had a group of eighth graders who wanted to spend a Saturday with their teacher in a lot, like, you know, for a, for a science teacher, what what better, what thing can be asked for? So. That is so um, I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah. Oh yeah. Actually, I, I think this is great advice. So uh, yeah, thank you for that. I was just thinking as you were talking, the kind of projects that other guests on our podcast have, who were telling us about. Like there was one guest um, who set up a whole parallel blockchain-based economy in his school in Melbourne. Um, oh, imagine oh, asking your principal for permission to do that. Oh, I'd like to set up a new economy so and students can trade with electronic <laughs> funds and uh, trade with the sort of world. But and now, they have a floating currency with the dollar. But they pretty right. much own the school now, yeah, given their the, yeah, yeah. digital currencies. They're, they're paying the teacher salaries. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And I know about other schools where they say, let's let's send a sensor array or a robot to Mars, and they're working with NASA to to implement an experiment that will travel to Mars. So nothing really is impossible these days. No, it's not. And as I sort of alluded, uh, the, this new generation of, of tech um, is just allowing kids to do things that even 10 years ago would have been unthinkable. And yes. now I think the exciting thing is like, what's going to come from that? Once we see that given the right tools and the right instruction and the right opportunities to experiment and do that iterative process, like kids can create things that really work. Like where else can we use that? And it doesn't just have to be tech. It can be, you know, mid tech or low or even no tech. And yeah, we're, we're, we're in a new world that is really challenging schools to think about how to deal with kids and kids ideas and kids work. Yeah. So teachers are change makers, right? Think of yourself as a change maker. You Change will happen with you or without you, so might as well be with you. <laughs> yeah, that is a perfect way to put it. You're, and I've, I've used that same analogy that, that those eighth graders, they're going to want to see what happens in their community. Why not have that be a positive experience rather than exactly as you said, like uh, that could go horribly in some some crazy directions. So. 
And uh, to wrap this up, I'm just going to make reference to the 2016 student Gallup found that, uh, poll that found that 42% of students in grades 5 to 12 want to make a positive change to the world. So great way to wrap things up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank you, Rich. Um, so uh, we're going to have your email address, obviously, at uh, in, in our show notes. Is there any other way or means of contact that you'd like uh, people to use with you? Um, yeah, that, that creating change makers um, email, that'll work. People can also reach me um, at rlehr, that's R-L-E-H-R-E-R, at bie.org. Um, that's my address through the Buck Institute for Education. And if anybody uh, wanted to, to get more information about the broader field of project-based learning, you could certainly uh, contact me there. Go Twitter. Yep. So uh, at richlair1 is my Twitter handle. And mm-hmm. I have a website, uh, richlair, R-I-C-H-L-E-H-R-E-R dot weebly dot com. And I just try to keep track of uh, some of the things that are percolating up and um, the broader you know, kind of change maker philosophies and ideas that kind of lie behind some of the, the work that I spoke about. So. That's great. Rich, thank you again for your time. It's, thank it you. was a pleasure. Uh, one hour and a half almost that went really quickly. <laughs> it was like a minute. <laughs> yeah, you thought I was kidding when I said I could go three hours on this. That's a, I believe you now. <laughs> we'll have yeah. to get you on again. Yep, to be yeah. continued. <laughs> Uh, thanks a lot to both of you. I really appreciated the conversation. First of all, appreciated the interest in the work. Uh, that's amazing that you found uh, your way to my work, and and uh, that was an awesome conversation. And uh, I appreciate uh, the time and and uh, the interest and, and the great questions. So thanks a lot. Our pleasure. Have a good day. That's all for this episode. The notes for this episode that include links to many of the resources mentioned and information on how to get in touch with Rich are available on our website, texplore.com forward slash pay forward slash STEMiverse. Each episode comes with its own page on the Tech Explorations website and a goldmine of information in the notes. This STEMiverse podcast episode was produced by Tech Explorations. If you have any questions or suggestions, would you like to nominate a friend or colleague to be our guest? Please email us at pa at texplore.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for the name of our podcast, STEMiverse. That's S-T-E-M-I-V-E-R-S-E. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again next time.